Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry every week. I'm Nick Axelrod Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Annie, how are you this week? I was going to ask you how you are this week. Oh, we should have planned this. Um, I'm okay. I find out, along with my husband, Casey, whether our surrogate is pregnant on Thursday of this week, which will be tomorrow, but will be yesterday when this episode airs. So that's that's what I'm I'm dealing with the anxiety of checking the message boards and the blog posts about like the chances of getting pregnant from a embryo transfer. So wait, I don't want to be rude. Did you not look that up before? No, I did, but like to soothe myself, I've just been like obsessively googling like chances and like yeah, feelings yeah, like it. and so I'll like text our surrogate like how do you feel today? And she's like, I was maybe a little nauseous, but I also like ate something weird. And it's like, I don't know. Does that mean that you're pregnant or does that mean <laughs> like, you're like not- stop eating weird stuff? <laughs> <laughs> we need to be able to have a clear test. She's like, I tried a smart sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I did read about smart sweets though recently that you're only supposed to have two bags max because they're like, they each bag has a hundred percent of your daily fiber, like recommended fiber intake. And Oof. that will do a number on your digestive system. What are you supposed to do the rest of the day? Just avoid kiwis and, <laughs> and <laughs> brand flakes? Yes. If, unless you want an explosion on your hands. Anyway. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Nye Robert-Smith, who is LA Beautyologist on Twitter and the Golden RX on YouTube. She is a licensed esthetician and a big influencer in the skincare space, and she's talking to us about inclusivity in skincare. And we sort of know that foundation ranges have been extended in the makeup category, but you know, when it comes to darker skin tones and skincare, how do you navigate the aisles and what products work for different skin tones? So That'll be an interesting conversation. And then we're also speaking to Lisa Price, who is the founder of Carol's Daughter, a hair care and body care brand founded in the 90s by Lisa in her kitchen and sold to L'Oreal in 2014. And uh, I'm interested to hear what she has to say about, you know, all of the transparency that a lot of organizations are being asked for by black consumers, you know, during this moment. And I think she has an inspiring story to tell as well. But before we get to all that, should we talk about the week's top stories? Let's do it. So the biggest thing on the internet in the skincare world this week was this drama between influencer Susan Yara and this skincare brand called Naturium, which actually I mentioned two episodes ago. Uh, I love their eye cream and their founder, Ben Bennett, is a friend of mine. So basically, on this past Monday, Susan posted a video in which she revealed that she was the co-founder of Naturium. And meanwhile, she had been promoting the brand on her Facebook group that she has, on her Instagram, on her YouTube, without disclosing that she was the co-founder. So she would say like, oh, I love this vitamin C serum. It's better than the ordinary's vitamin C serum. She would say, oh, here's a 25% off discount code to use for Naturium, all of which would seem to be skating on thin ice with the FTC. And so when she admitted that she was the co-founder of the brand, fellow influencers, including Caroline Hurons, and also fans, like, revolted. And, and Annie, you were saying that Reddit has been up in arms. Yeah, Reddit, skincare addiction is up in arms. What's their complaint? Well, that she lied. And so they're giving each other advice on how to uh, file a complaint with the FTC because they don't feel that it's right that she was basically telling people that this is a third-party review. I really like genuinely love these products when in fact she is saying she's a co-founder. 
They're also accusing her of deleting comments that were critical of the brand. And what she was saying is basically like, I didn't disclose that I was the founder because I wanted to get honest feedback. And if people knew that I was the founder, they would like try to be nice or something and and just be nice about the brand and not tell her what they honestly felt. I think that that's a very silly thing that she did. You know, I reached out to Ben to get his comment and his point of view. I invited them both on the podcast and, you know, they're working on a comment that they're going to release, I guess, shortly, but TBD on whether they'll come on the pod. But I feel like they should and sort of explain the situation and maybe give some insight into like how the decision was made to reveal it this way and what they're feeling about the feedback. I agree. I think it would be really helpful context for, you know, consumers too to understand like, you know, what a certain brand considers a founder versus even like we were talking last week with like, who, what does, what does ownership look like? You know, is it having 10% of your company or is it having over 50%? Like all these terms are getting thrown around a lot right now. And it's, um, I feel like every company has a different definition of what that means to them. Speaking of ownership, currently Cody, the cosmetics brand that uh, acquired 51% stake in Kylie Cosmetics is in a fight with Seed Beauty, which is the manufacturer of all of Kylie's cosmetics and Kim Kardashian West cosmetics. So Seed Beauty basically uses the name of Kim Kardashian West and the name Kylie Skin, and they create the products, they ship the products, they fulfill everything, like they do all the, the grunt work for like the creation of these two brands. And they are now fighting with Cody or they're trying to stop Cody from having access to trade secrets, what they're calling trade secrets, that would be revealed when they're looking over Kim Kardashian West business documents. Because Mm -hmm. apparently Cody now wants to buy a majority stake in Kim Kardashian West cosmetics. So basically what's going on here is that Seed Beauty is this almost like third wheel to KKW, Kylie, Cody, so fourth wheel yeah <laughs> to their tricycle to their tricycle we don't need that fourth wheel no and um, they don't want to be cut out they do need it they do need the fourth wheel because they're the they do i imagine they do product development and that's probably one of the trade secrets that they're talking about are the formulas there's all this i'm i'm learning or i had to learn when i started doing more and more product development was it means a lot for a brand to quote-unquote own their formulas versus using a formula that is like off the shelf with like maybe a small change like the color or the fragrance or a key ingredient. And so I imagine that Seed Beauty owns a lot of the formulas that KKW and Kylie use. And that's probably one of the trade secrets that they want to keep from Cody, who's coming in as overlord of the (laughs) Kardashian makeup empire. I mean, it's also kind of interesting that Cody is even interested in Kim Kardashian's makeup line because they bought... Kylie Cosmetics, it was, wasn't it revealed recently that like she wasn't actually a billionaire and like because of the like filings involved in the Cody case or the Cody acquisition? I mean, Forbes is saying that they lied and they like drew up a fake tax return, but they also were the ones that named her the billionaire. So it's like, guys, get your shit together, Forbes. They feel fooled. It's hard to feel bad for a magazine that like espouses like capitalism nonstop. True. What, is there anything else going on this week? Five days ago, the FDA issued a recall on certain hand sanitizers manufactured by a producer in Mexico because they use methanol, which is a wood alcohol, rather than what we talked about last week with Dr. Darian, which is ethanol. And so this is highly toxic. <laughs> it should not be 
absorbed into your skin, which is what happens when you use it as a hand sanitizer. And so they're recalling a list of about like 10 brands. So maybe check them out. I think it comes back to what Dr. Darian said, which is just read the ingredient label. And if it's ethyl alcohol or ethanol, then you're good. And if it's above 66%, should be around 66 to 70% ethyl alcohol, then you're fine. If it is using anything else, then you should be a little bit more suspicious of, of the product. Because again, as you said, Annie, every brand is trying to release a hand sanitizer and they're not all good and they're not all getting their ingredients from good places. And also use soap and water. I mean, soap bars are so chic. They don't get enough credit. So those are our hot topics. We still haven't figured out the name for this segment, but you know, Wendy Williams took hot topics, so we have to think of something. But anyway, let's move on to our interview with Lisa Price. So we were super excited to get some time with Lisa Price, who is the founder of Carol's Daughter, a skincare, hair care, and body care brand primarily for black women actually started out of her kitchen in Brooklyn in 1993 and then was acquired by L'Oreal in 2014. So she has this very unique perspective as both a indie beauty entrepreneur who was bootstrapping it for 10 years before she took on investors and also as a you know executive at a beauty conglomerate. And we thought sort of now with all the conversations that are happening around race in America and in our industry, race in the beauty industry, that she'd be a really interesting person to check in with. So here's our interview with Lisa. So you you started Carol's Daughter in 93 and then sold it to L'Oreal in 2014, right? Yes. So without making you rehash the entire journey, I, I was wondering what the biggest milestones for you, like looking back on those years, what really stood out to you in terms of like the defining moments in that journey? Going from doing business as and becoming a corporation and having employees and, you know, getting my corporate seal, that was a big deal. Even though I was already a business, there was something very official about that moment. And then also having a physical storefront for the first time because the business started in 93, but I didn't have a physical storefront until August of 99. So that felt very official Going on the Oprah Winfrey show in 2002, for sure, was a big moment. And then getting a business partner in 2004, having investors in 2005. So did you bootstrap all the way up until 2004 or 5? Pretty much. There were two bank loans in there between 2000 and 2002. There were two small bank loans, but I didn't take on investment until 2004. So I was on my own for 11 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so when you did decide to bring people into the business, how did you approach fundraising? What had actually happened was I got to a space where I realized, okay, this is not something that I can really do by myself anymore, but I'm not exactly sure what the next steps are. And I started to ask questions and there was a guy that did some consulting work for me from time to time. And he said that he could facilitate meetings with me between people. And then if anybody invested, like he would get a finder's fee. And honestly, I didn't understand what all of that meant at the time, but I knew it was something that I needed to explore. So I, you know, since I didn't have to pay him to do that, he would only get paid if someone gave me money. Um, I had him set up some conversations just so I could see 
what it looks like and get myself comfortable with that process. And then what ended up happening is one of my customers and friends called me one day and she said, you know, I know this guy that used to be in the music business. He's in advertising now and he wants to meet you. And that person was Steve Stout. And I met Steve in October of 2003 for lunch. And he expressed an interest in becoming partners and investing in the brand. And since I had had some of those other conversations with that other guy, I could really see the difference between their conversations and his. And he was an entrepreneur himself. And he spoke to me like business person to business person. There was no condescension. There was no, are you prepared for me to take you to the next level? Which I actually heard multiple times from people. He was just straightforward. He understood what I was trying to do and he understood what I needed to the point where I, you know, eerily felt like he had been spying on me somehow. I was like, how could you know this much about what I'm doing? You're, you're not in this exact same business, but he just really understood what being an entrepreneur was. The thing about Steve that shifted everything was he was the type of person and I is, is, is how I always describe him, where I feel like he sees just a little bit further down the road from other people. So he looks out into the future and he's like, you know what? I know things look like they're like this, but I see them turning this way and it's going to shift. And so I want to get ahead of that and I want to be ready for that. And then he, he does his research and he comes in with the numbers and he convinces people, you don't want to wait because this change is coming. I see this signal. I see this. I see this. So he was able to convince other people to come on board and be investors because he convinced them that he could see the future. And, and he kind of did. Do you have an example of what some of those things were that were happening, maybe like in culture that were markers for him or you? He had said that my products sort of ended up in his life through people that he had been dating here and there. And these women were not women that would normally travel uh, to Brooklyn to purchase products, even clothing. That just wasn't a thing that they did. And it just piqued his interest that somebody was making this what he called a pilgrimage to go to Brooklyn to get things. And he felt if they're doing this and if they're seeing something in this that's making it worthwhile to them to go, there's something here that's not being tapped into. So then he started doing research on African-American beauty companies, products, the demographic, the spending power, what is spent on marketing, what's spent on advertising, and what that whole thing looked like, and felt that there was something to tap in there because it was a different story being told. It was not about relaxers. It was about natural ingredients. It, it wasn't necessarily about before and after. It was about feeling good and feeling empowered. And then the women that he spoke to about it, they would tell them, oh, I just love her stuff because it just smells so good. My skin feels so good. Um, it makes me feel sexy. Like, you know, the, the things that they told him, he started to say to himself, but who speaks to black women in this way? Who, who's marketing to them in this way? Why don't we? And we can be the ones to do it. 
And so he saw white space. So the business grew obviously tremendously once you had brought Steve on and taken some money to scale the business. Did you have any hesitation to sell the company when that became a reality? No, because first I went through the process of bringing Steve in as a partner. And then Steve brought other investors into the company and we had some celebrity investors that invested in the in the brand. So that was another layer of letting other people in in a different way. And then at the end of 2007, we took on equity partners with Pegasus Capital Advisors. And what I learned going through that process was these people are going to come in, they're going to come in with a big influx of cash, they're going to help to, you know, really scale the business. And the end goal is to sell to a strategic partner, and then they get paid back. And hopefully we all get more than what we've originally invested, because the value of the company is going to be so much higher. So I knew that that sale would be a reality at some point. We estimated three to five years. It ended up being seven years because we went through a recession right after we closed that deal. So when it got to the point that you're taking yourself out to be sold, I was ready at that point because I knew what I had gotten into seven years prior. A lot of people might not realize that, that when you take on institutional money, unlike, you know, maybe celebrity money or friends and family money, but when you take on institutional money, there's one goal and that's to, you know, Mm -hmm. to flip the business. The exit needs to be a reality, not like a pipe dream. What I always thought at the time was my company always looked to other people to be larger than it actually was more established, better infrastructure, way more money. Like when I was making things by myself in my kitchen by hand and putting the labels on, people thought I had a factory. When I had a warehouse and we're making things in a warehouse, they thought I had a bigger warehouse. It, it, it always looked to be more than it was. And I, I always felt this, this responsibility and I'm not sure exactly where this came from, but I, I didn't feel like I was supposed to be making things for me and only thinking about me. I felt like my responsibility was to the consumer. And if, if I could make things better or make things more efficiently or sell more or be more available to her, then it was worth whatever sacrifices to see how far it could go and to see what I could bring to her. Now, granted, at the end of the day, I did make money for myself, but I didn't know that that would actually happen. It, you know, it's like, it's your goal and it's your plan, but you don't know for certain that it's going to happen. But I knew that I couldn't just stay where I was. And I knew that I couldn't live with what if. So it wasn't the thought process of, well, let's take on an investor because one day I want to be really rich. It was, let's take on an investor because how else am I going to see what this can do? So you sold to L'Oreal in 2014. Mm-hmm. And so it's been six years as part of the L'Oreal conglomerate. How, how has that experience been for you? It's been um, interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's different than, you know, being uh, an independent brand. In some ways, it, it can feel as if nothing has changed, even though everything has changed. 
when it first happened, I still felt like the exact same person. Like, okay, I know this deal just went through yesterday, but I'm still Lisa Price. I'm still Carol's daughter. I'm still the founder. I'm still creating products. I'm still going on HSN. I still come to work every day. So in so many ways, it felt the same. And then the longer that you're involved and the more that you become a part of this huge organization, you begin to realize process is different. Politics are different. Protocol is different. Not necessarily good or bad, but different because it's a different size. It's a different responsibility. It's a different process. It's, it's, it's global. It's not just the U.S. So learning that and operating within it um, was something that I had to learn how to do. And then also trying to be a person, not necessarily to change L'Oreal, because it's not like I'm going to come into a company and change this big company, but feeling comfortable to say, is there possibly another way that we can do this? Can we maybe do it this way? Can we maybe do it that way? And sort of challenging the status quo, that has been a great thing. And you can't always do it, But when you're a person who's always been an introvert and a person who's always been shy about speaking up to finally get to a place where you recognize that you have a voice and you actively use it, it's very, very empowering. And I'm grateful. Like I, I never, ever wake up and think to myself, oh God, if I hadn't have done it, I I never feel like that even when things are challenging and difficult, I know I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And I know that I'm on the path that I'm supposed to be on. You know, one other thing that I think you've probably been talking a lot about recently is in light of, you know, Sharon Shooter's pull up or shut up initiative, all of these beauty companies and now even companies outside of the beauty industry are being asked by consumers to reveal their diversity numbers What are your feelings on the pull up or shut up initiative? I think that the initiative is a good thing because we do have to have better representation. We have to hold companies accountable and and ensure that they are paying attention to the communities that they're selling to. Where it's gotten, you know, a little bit sticky for me and for some, some other brands as well is because I am a brand that was founded by a black person, but this black person sold the brand to another company. It's as if in some people's opinions, I'm not saying in the person who started the thing, because I don't even know that person. I'm not saying in, in their opinion, but in the public opinion, it's as if I've lost the right to comment on black issues and I've lost the right to be an advocate because I sold out. And I just don't agree with that. I'm still an advocate. I still support small business. I support Black-owned businesses. I support women-owned businesses. I love entrepreneurship. I love entrepreneurs. And I support diversity and inclusion everywhere, not just in my company, but everywhere. And I'm not going to stop being vocal about that. But my business path took me in a direction that this was the best decision for my company, for myself, for my family. And I'm okay if you don't agree with it, but you don't get to tell me that I can't step in and talk about Black issues whenever I want to, because I'm going to. It seems like I'm 
going off your Wikipedia, so like correct <laughs> me if this is wrong. Uh, but you took on um, investment money from black yes. investors too, which is something that a lot of brand, even big independent brands today, like can't say that they're doing. So there's kind of this argument around like, even if you are a black owned brand now, like right. who's your investor, right? Who's actually getting rich off of this and the, the thing and the that of things. is going on too, is that when you're talking about inequities between whites and blacks, there's a wealth disparity there. There's businesses that we just don't have experience owning. So I understand that when you have something that you feel is yours and you don't want someone else to take it away. I totally get that feeling and I understand why people feel that way. But in order for an entire race at some point to have the wealth equity with our white counterparts, we have to build things and maybe sell them because it's the only way that we're going to build generational wealth. And it's not something that can be solved quickly because we've had 400 years of being suppressed. So you can't turn it all around in 10 years. And, you know, I remember when I sold, someone had written in a comment on Facebook, well, why couldn't you have just let Oprah buy it? And then it would still be black owned. And I'm like, but Oprah's in media. (laughs) Like she's not in the beauty business and she already has a lot to do, you know, but it's, it's just, it's that, that level of not fully understanding the, the whole picture. So even though people get upset with me and they call me a sellout and whatever, I still try to have the conversation and I, and I still talk about it because I want us all to get more comfortable with that and to learn and to learn to applaud those of us that, that do this because it, it takes a lot of work and your dedication to the community and the consumer does not change at all. It, it, it actually becomes even more of a mission. And in a way, I think one of the things that Sharon Tudor, um, who's behind the initiative, was telling us when we spoke to her was that, you know, affecting change in the beauty industry can come from within the beauty mm-hmm. industry. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not about toppling the institutions necessarily. Nope. And and it's it, it could be about, you know, she said there are some very simple things to do recruit from historically black colleges and universities, Uh hire black people. Uh Like there are very simple things that these companies can do to increase their representation of black people. And it's not about creating a black Estee Lauder because that is, while a great goal is not actionable immediately, but what you can do immediately is, you know, hold yourself accountable to higher higher numbers. the, The first that I heard of pull up or shut up, was Jackie Aina's post. And she said, you have 72 hours to show us your numbers. And I I looked at that. I was like, oh, it's about to get real. (laughs) These people are not playing. No, it was, it was great. It was great. I I appreciate it. It happened so quickly. It really did. And you know, it, it's been uncomfortable sort of navigating that space and, you know, being in, in the place where people are attacking your company and attacking your integrity. Like we put up a post for Juneteenth and people just came for us. They were like, you're not allowed to speak about Juneteenth. You're not black. You know, it's like, no, no, we still are, <laughs> but it's fine because the other side of uncomfortable situations, there's always good stuff that comes from it. And I'll gladly go through whatever to ensure that everybody is coming out better on the other side. 
you are in a really unique position, I think, to give advice to a lot of young um, or not even young, just like first time beauty entrepreneurs, black beauty entrepreneurs, especially in this moment in, in history where a lot of, I think, VC firms are being taken to task around like where they're putting their money. Uh-huh. Um, even brands like Glossier did a $500,000 grant initiative for black beauty businesses. So what advice do you have for these entrepreneurs that are suddenly presented with these like great opportunities for a ton of money, maybe in exchange for like parts of their business? What do you have to say to them right now? If you're being presented with money, even though money is usually not a difficult thing to manage, um, you figure out a way. You do want the money that you get to be smart money. I remember Steve used to use that term. And by that, I mean being in business with someone that understands what you're doing And if they don't understand what you're doing, they know that you understand what you're doing and they're not going to interfere with it. Because if you're, if you're getting money, but with the money comes conditions and confusion and why are you doing that? And why don't you do it this way? And if every step of the way you have to translate your process to them, then that money can't work as efficiently as it should. So you should have a communication There should be a level of respect and it shouldn't all just be about the dollars. And of course, please have lawyers and accountants look over your deal and make sure that it's smart and that you have an exit strategy if you need it, because it, you know, initially it can look like, yes. And then when you dig deep into it, it's like, "Mm, maybe not the right fit. So what is life like? I think a lot of people would be very curious to know, you sell your brand, you get a big payday, uh, you're still involved in the brand though. What is life like on a day-to-day basis as it pertains to Carol's daughter? Well, before COVID, um, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was developing new products. It was writing for me, writing copy, being, being the voice of the brand. Just earlier today, I had a team member set up a meeting with me because they're working on some online campaigns and people come to me for the history. You know, they can't really find everything online, you know, because things didn't exist. So they would, you know, what year did you make so-and-so and what, what was, what was the spark, you know? And, and then you, you, you tell them the story and, and all of a sudden from that conversation, they've got these great ideas on, you know, how to write about it or how to, to talk about it. So, you know, like I said before, a lot of what I do is, is still the same, but also within this week and, and as a part of my role in L'Oreal within L'Oreal, I'm a member of the executive committee and being in the executive committee and being a corporate member of L'Oreal, you have sort of your overall responsibility to the corporation and not just to the division and the brand that you work on. And we have had lots of conversations as a company with regard to race in America and and what has happened in the last month with George Floyd, with Ahmaud Arbery, with Breonna Taylor. And we had a town hall earlier this week, and I got to speak to the entire consumer products division you know, virtually, but it was amazing to be in a position where my experience as a founder of a brand wasn't as needed as my experience as a Black woman in America. 
and just being able to have that voice within this corporate environment at a time when people need education and when people need to hear stories and when people need to be emboldened to change the status quo. And that was remarkable and fulfilling. And I wasn't the only person. There were several of us that were in that position in that conversation. And uh, it was a very proud moment for me. How can you know the beauty industry for people who are listening who might have companies or work at companies, how, how do you see things changing in the immediate future? I think things are going to change when people sit down and have conversations and listen to other people and really listen, not try to defend, not try to explain, not try to fix, because there's some things that you, you're just not going to be able to fix overnight. There are some things that you can do right away, but you know other things are going to take time. And I also think that it's important for non-people of color to educate themselves on what privilege is. Because I think some people hear, when they hear that they are beneficiaries of white privilege, I think they hear that I'm saying to them, your life is really easy. You don't have to do anything. I work so much harder than you do. You're lazy. And that's not what's being said at all. And that's not what's being thought. So you have to try to take yourself out of the equation and just look at it for what the facts are. And and then the more people that you speak to that don't look like you, the more that you'll learn that these stories that you're hearing are really real. Because some some of our colleagues, we're we're all speaking to each other and we're having conversations that we just wouldn't have had before. And for some people, there's this assumption that there's an African-American community where the bad things happen and that's those people. But then there's the African-American community that's different And that's like who my friends are. And those are the people that I know, but they don't experience those things that the other people experience. And what they're discovering through these conversations that we're having is that we all experience the same thing. So it doesn't matter that I'm the founder of a company and I sold my company to L'Oreal and I'm a millionaire. I still deal with racism. I can't catch a cab in New York City. I can't. I've watched taxis drive across 10th Avenue, across five lanes of traffic to pick up somebody who looks like you and not pick up me. So they're they're surprised to hear that. They're like, really? Really? Because they thought it had to do with this is where this person lives, but that person lives over there and things are good there. And that's not how this works. So They thought it had to do with class. Yes. You have to have the conversations even though they're uncomfortable and and awkward and, you know, they can make you cry. And, you know, that's, that's the beginning. That's, that's where the work begins because then you can, you can understand each other better. The other thing that it's making me think of though, when I think about the beauty industry, because we were just talking about Steve earlier and I thought of something that Steve said years ago when we were in a meeting and he was talking about how, And this is in 2003, 2004. So things have changed somewhat. But he was talking about how the beauty industry sells white women hope 
you know, buy this and you can become this. And that you can't do that for black women, that black women just look at life differently and they're not looking for you to take them from this to this. And they don't want hope. They want to know that something is going to work and it has to fit into their life. They're not waiting for something to make them better. And I remember listening to him say that and thinking, wow, that it's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. But because the beauty industry never really spoke to me and said, you're a consumer and I want to have you. And, and this is something that I think you would like. I didn't look for them to validate me either. So I figured stuff out on my own. So it wasn't that I was walking around feeling like I'm not beautiful or feeling like I don't matter. That validation came from other places. It came from my mother. It came from my father. It came from my family members. It came from my friends. And we lifted each other up and we took care of each other. Um, So that's something else that I think the beauty industry has to look at as well. You didn't talk to this person for a really long time. So you can't turn around today and all of a sudden she's your best friend. You know, you, you got to get to know her and, and you may have to have somebody else facilitate the conversation because this other person knows her better than you do. So don't try to have that first meeting without somebody being your go-between, you know, like you're, you're at a club and you need a wingman to go talk to somebody because it, it's a, it's a different it's a different language. Ultimately, we all want the same thing. You know, we want to be validated. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. But the way that you go about it with us, with Black women, is is going to be different. Talk to Rihanna. Rihanna figured out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing that Lisa said that really stuck with me as someone who feels like they're a marketing expert in the beauty industry is that white women are marketed to very differently than black women. White women are, you know, given this idea that, uh, what did she call it? Hope, like buy our product and you can become this thing. There's literally a product called Hope in a Jar, in a jar. sold by philosophy. <laughs> and then she was saying that black women just want to know that the product works, right? And I don't know if it's because I'm more sensitive to this language right now, but I actually saw a commercial for a skincare product on Instagram the other day for a brightening product that specifically called out that it was safe for all skin tones, which was not language that I've at least picked up on before for skincare. I, you see it a lot with color makeup, but yeah, it kind of, it stuck out to me. And I wonder if maybe that means that like in the skincare side of things in particular, there's a shift happening right now. So we talked to my friend, Nye Robert Smith, who is LA beautyologist on Twitter and the golden RX on YouTube. She is a skincare expert and also one of the most in demand estheticians in Los Angeles. And we really wanted to understand, you know, obviously skincare is not a one size fits all, you know, problem and solution. So it's not like a brightening product that works for one skin tone is going to work for another skin tone. Or is it, I guess, is the question, especially given the the ads that we were seeing for that new product by Estee Lauder, I think. Yeah. Um, so here's our interview with Nye. What is hyperpigmentation and who does it, you know, what kind of skin tones and types does it affect? Hyperpigmentation accounts for any areas of excess melanin um, on the skin in any skin type. So 
What that means is that, you know, there are different types of hyperpigmentation. Freckles are considered hyperpigmentation. Um, if you, you know, and any um, from an injury or something like that, if the skin is darker, that's hyperpigmentation, like scarring almost. Um, scarring is really not the right word professionally. Because, like acne scars. Yeah, because scarring really means like scar tissue, like it's a different type of tissue, like the cells are different, but that's how like, I guess like in layman's terms, like that's how consumers understand it. Like they feel like it's a scar. So that's why I say it like that, even though it's not technically correct. <laughs> and then there's also like melasma, so hormonal um, hyperpigmentation there. You can get hyperpigmentation caused by anything from pregnancy to birth control to menopause to there's a lot of things that can cause melasma. And then there is, um, you can get hyperpigmentation from heat, um, from friction, like in between thighs, if you have chubby legs or under, under your arms from shaving or just the friction of rubbing your arms back and forth. So there's, then there's also sun damage that causes hyperpigmentation, um, which you see more in lighter skin types, the, the sunspots. And I believe those are all like, the the broader range types of hyperpigmentation and so within that like basically every skin type is susceptible to a different you know to all to different types of hyperpigmentation yeah absolutely 100 percent. different types of course because if your skin is lighter you may be more susceptible to freckles or um, sun damage sunspots whereas if you already have so Everyone has the same amount of melanocytes, the the cells that produce melanin. Um, melanin are just little pockets of um, pigment. They're just little little capsules almost. Um, if you want to think about it as ink or like something like that. So when your skin has an injury or it's responding to UV rays or it's responding to hormonal cues, you, those melanocytes will send their little packets of ink, of melanin, to the surface to protect the skin, which is the purpose of melanin. But if you have, if your skin is dark, that means your melanocytes are, they're already very active. They do a lot. They're always constantly producing melanin. So you're more likely to hyperpigment if you're already of a darker skin shade because your melanocytes already do a lot of work. That's pretty much why it works like that. And so you'd say that like the number one concern that you see in your skincare esthetician practice is hyperpigmentation? It's probably close tied with acne. Acne and hyperpigmentation, I'd say, are the number number 1A and number 1B for people of color, whereas I'd say anti-aging and Acne is number one A and number one B for lighter skin types. And when you see these patients, what are the sort of the main treatments that you're dispensing for these conditions or like what solutions do you have? It's always really important to treat the cause of the hyperpigmentation first. So, I mean, that involves identifying the hyperpigmentation that it is, whether it's being caused by the sun, whether it's hormonal, whether it's um, from post-acne marks, that would be like post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, and then proceeding from there. Um, I do, um, usually I'll do like a mixture of chemical peels and then also treat the skin with what's called tyrosinase inhibitors. So that just kind of stops the cycle of melanin production um, or overactive melanin production because your skin will always produce melanin if you're brown. So it's, it's, it's really, it really depends per person what um, treatments are going to work, what ingredients they should look for specifically or use regularly. 
But I have found that for skin of color, different ingredients work better for hyperpigmentation than it does for those with lighter skin. So that is definitely really interesting. So for the different skin types and tones, what works best? In my experience, vitamin C really is not a go-to for um, darker skin types. Um, I'd probably stop using vitamin C on someone around um, Fitzpatrick scale four, which is maybe like a it's like a Mediterranean olive olivey skin tone. What's the Fitzpatrick scale? <laughs> Fitzpatrick scale is a scale of how your skin reacts to um, UV rays. So Fitzpatrick scale one, that's looking like someone who is very very fair-skinned, usually from um, Northern Europe, very, very light hair, light skin, burns very easily, sometimes has freckles, high, high risk for skin cancer, skin damage. Got it. Um, Fitzpatrick scale two would be someone who's not quite as light, you know, doesn't burn quite as easily, still at a high risk for skin cancer. Fitzpatrick Fitzpatrick scale three is about usually darker hair, darker eyes, um, a little bit warmer, richer skin tone, um, less of a like a pink undertone. And then four is more like olive, Mediterranean, also like sometimes Middle Eastern, Arab, lighter people from maybe like India or like parts of Asia would also be four. Fitzpatrick scale five would probably be like maybe Rihanna or Beyonce, lighter browns. And then Fitzpatrick scale six is like deeper tone. Um, I mean, there's actually inherent some problems with the Fitzpatrick scale um, because I find that the range for deeper skin tones like encompasses a lot more skin types than it does. Like it's a lot more specific for lighter skin tones, um, but considering it only really is determining how your skin reacts to UV rays. I I guess it's fairly accurate, but Fitzpatrick scale five, six would be anyone from like me to like Alec Weck. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like Alec Weck or um, even like Naomi Campbell, um, Daniel Kalua, all those people would still be considered like six. And you were saying like you stop vitamin C is not something that you find very effective for like five and deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darker fours um, and on, I'd probably use not vitamin C. I'd use like kojic acid, licorice root, um, azelic acid, um, mendelic acid is an amazing one. Um, uh, lactic acid. Uh, those I find are much more effective for deeper skin tones than vitamin C, actually, which I'm not sure why. I'd love to study it, but it's it's vitamin C is such a um, a go to staple, iconic um, skincare ingredient. I can't imagine studies being done on why it doesn't work as well for darker skin tones. <laughs> not for a long time. What about hydroquinone? I'm very, so I don't think that hydroquinone is a bad ingredient. I just think that it it has to be used so carefully and has so many stipulations that I'm not a fan of it because hydroquinone is the only ingredient that actually kills melanocytes. Like it has a, um, it's a, it's a cytotoxin. Like it, it literally kills the cell. So if you're not careful with how you use it, you'll get, um, like darkening of the skin. Um, you'll get hypopigmentation. So like light spots in the skin, you can't fix hypopigmentation. That will look maybe even a little bit like vitiligo in some, in some instances. It's like too potent almost. 
Almost. The safe way to use it is on and off. It's like three months on, three months off. Of course, you have to use SPF.、Um, but if you use it for too many, too extended period of a time, you'll find you can accidentally damage your skin.、Um, if you're not obsessive about SPF use, you can accidentally damage your skin a lot more than you can even with like retinol or acids or anything like that. Hydroquinone is really very, very serious of an ingredient. In the United States, you can get it over the counter at like two. Percent, you can get it prescription at four percent, but a lot of countries, like in Europe, have completely banned it. But it's、yeah. a it's a very popular ingredient in skin lightening, brightening, whitening, bleaching products in Asia and in Africa. And if your skin isn't like deeper, you don't have much of a much of anything to worry about with it, it accidentally, you know. Like killing or bleaching surrounding skin or surrounding cells or anything like that, but I, I guess sometimes that's why it's it's not as closely regulated、um, in some instances, and why doctors will kind of just give it to patients without really thinking. Because for skin of color, you know, again, it's like a little afterthought. It's like, oh, it should be fine. Like, don't worry about it. But I've definitely treated people who have. Burn their skin or really damage their skin with HQ. So that's interesting. And given that you know trials and tests and all those sort of things within skincare are likely performed on a predominantly Caucasian or lighter skinned population, how do you go about you know prescribing products and treatments and recommendations to your clients? I take a lot of classes,、um, and in those classes, I happen to be the one asking all the questions because, of course, you know they, their information is very general. But I want to know specifically: Can I use this on my darker skin clients? At what point can I no longer use it? Like, at what point in the Fitzpatrick scale can I no longer use this? Is it safe? How do you know? Have you done it? Are you just going by what you think is possible? <laughs>、um, I cross-reference a lot of information.、Um, a lot of older, more seasoned estheticians, doctors of color who I, you know, really trust and you know who've been in the industry longer than me.、Um, I take their advice and recommendations very seriously. And then, of course, you know what I've used on myself.、Um, other black estheticians, you know, who are more of like my peers, less of like a, you know, like my mentors, you know, and see like what works for them, what's not working for them, things like that. So it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work. It's a lot of like outside information and a lot of really digging and asking questions. And sometimes it's trial and error. I I won't do anything to anybody else that I haven't done on myself first. <laughs> Granted, because it works on me doesn't mean it will work on somebody else. But I at least want to feel safe knowing that you know I did it to myself first, <laughs> so that it's safe for others. So, what are some of your favorite products for hyperpigmentation across the board right now? Let's see. One, I've been using these two products together actually, and I'm really excited about how the results have been so far. It's Cerave's Renewing Retinol along with Allies of Skin Brightening Serum, which is eight percent mandelic acid. I think I don't know if it's eight percent, but I know mandelic acid is one of the leading ingredients in it. That's one of my favorite. That's right now、um, a really, really impressive combination.、Um, it's a very low level of retinol in the Cerave product, but I think it just helps encourage cell tone for just a little bit enough to. 
boost the effects of the brightening serum. So I'm very excited about that. I didn't even know you could combine retinol and a brightening serum. You technically maybe shouldn't with most products, but um, it was an experiment (laughs) that I was doing because I know how gentle that retinol is. How do you use it? I started using the retinol once a week. I did that for four weeks. Um, Then I started using the brightening serum, not on the day that I was using retinol. And then I started using them together. Um, And because I built them up, my tolerance to each of them up separately, I can use them together now. Like I wanted to, but that was my plan, but I had to do them separately first. At night? Um, Yes, at night, only at night. Don't want to do it in the morning. Um, your skin is more hypersensitive in the morning and you just, your skin isn't, it's not renewing. Your, your body is focusing on doing other things. At nighttime, your skin cells are just renewing and you're able to use the ingredients that you apply topically to them a lot more readily. So that's, that's the reason I use it at nighttime. Another product that I really love for hyperpigmentation is from Eminence, their licorice bright skin booster. Their primary ingredient is licorice root in that one. And I love it. It's great. I um, love Eminence. Hyper- yeah, that's an excellent product for hyperpigmentation. Always going to be one of my favorites. PCA's pigment gel. They have two versions, one with hydroquinone and one without. I like their one without hydroquinone. It uses kojic acid and azelic acid primarily as their brightening ingredients. And though that one is excellent too. That one's strong enough to use like as a spot treatment. You wouldn't even need to use that one all over the face. So in general, with these products, do you recommend using it all over the face versus spot treatment to create like an evenness? It really depends on the person. But if someone's looking for like an overall evening or brightening of the skin, um, if you have dark spots in more than maybe like more than like a fourth of the face, I'd probably just say use it all over because you could benefit from it. So interesting. (laughs) You're like a doctor, basically. <laughs> Esthetician school is like fucking oh, medical school. Oh, man, it's not. <laughs> I can't imagine how much ca- more difficult medical school is. <laughs> do, you get, do you work on cadavers in esthetician school? <laughs> no, we don't. I wish. That would be so okay. fun. <laughs> we only work on each other. <laughs> Casey, um, in we went to Amsterdam a few months ago mm-hmm. because he did this uh, injectable conference uh, that was like this European conference about how to do injectables and they did it in on cadavers oh, in wow. a cadaver lab. Oh, I would be so pissed <laughs> if I died and like I had people <laughs> like shoving um, Juvederm in your cheek. <laughs> <laughs> like when you say you like dedicate your like your body to science, like that's not really. <laughs> Wasn't envisioning Botox, but thanks guys. <laughs> exactly. That's really funny. Um, so does there exist a skincare brand that can, that's like a solution-oriented skincare brand for people who are, say, four and and higher on the Fitzpatrick scale? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fitzpatrick scale. Because, you know, there are makeup lines that cater to darker skin tones. There are hair brands that have come mm-hmm. out recently, like Pattern or TPH hair, that cater to uh, curlier and kinkier hair types. Mm-hmm. But there don't seem to be, at least I can't think of, like a full brand that is solution-oriented for right. darker skin tones. Yeah, not that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, there, of course, are definitely products across the board. You know, you could walk into um, Sephora and find, a, you know, I'd recommend a bunch of products, but nothing specifically targeting... Those are darker skin types that say, like, this is for you specifically. Like, I was looking at an article about 
Taraji P. Henson's line, mm-hmm. uh, her hair care line, and it was described as solution-oriented hair care. Yeah. And I thought that was such an interest. Like, that, to me, is such a white space mm-hmm. in the in darker skin tones and black skin tones because there just doesn't exist a brand that in and of itself is like sort of, like, clinically motivated. Right. Because, and, and Andy and I were talking about this before we spoke to you, like, in the product development rooms and labs there aren't a lot of people of color and black women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that means that they're, you know, people think that there's some crazy, and there is a level of science going on mm-hmm. in, in some brands, but a lot of smaller brands, it's like people trying it on themselves yeah. and seeing whether they like it and Very whether it does so. what, you know, what they want it to do. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if all those people are Caucasian or have lighter skin, then they're not going to be creating products that are appropriate for darker skin tones. Oh yeah, definitely. You're definitely going to be missing the mark. And it's also something that like, you don't even know that you don't know, you know, like I'm aware that a lot of brands don't even realize that like, this isn't great for darker skin types until you try it. And you realize that the people buying your products are 85% white. That would probably be really alarming, you know, like, Oh, like what did we miss? What did we forget? But I'm sure brands don't even think about those things. You know, people want to like brands. They don't want to hate brands, right? Like we want to, we want to engage with them. But like now people are like, oh, wait, like, look at this, uh, like ability of this community and this, you know, movement to affect change very quickly, Mm -hmm. like pull up or shut up. It was like three days. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, like, you know, public corporations are releasing statistics that they don't even release on their like Wall Street calls. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like there's it it sort of gives me some hope for beaut- for like the skincare world mm-hmm. that like it's not just lip service. Yeah, very much so. And I love that it's being done in the beauty industry because it's so it's it's so obvious that we're talking about skin tones and diversity you know I think it's a great place to start because it's not something that you can just like pretend or ignore you know what I mean like I, I it's the point yeah exactly it's it's, the, it's, it's directly the, the it's the whole thing <laughs> so I think you know the skin the beauty industry skincare industry you know really being at the forefront of it and being like very loud and very I don't know if demanding is the right word because it kind of has a negative connotation but you know really holding these brands accountable is really going to stretch much further than the beauty industry. So this is the part of the show that our readers have grown to know and love. Listeners. Damn it. (laughs) Well, they're reading with their ears, Nick. True. The product review. It's basically show and tell where we get to bring something to the table and tell each other and our readers about it. So it's the tell, not the show. Correct. I'll go first this week. I brought Mark Jacobs Recover Hydrating Coconut Lip Oil. And it's basically a really high shine, clear gloss, visually stunning. Texturally, it feels like your lips are made out of like a Tempur-Pedic mattress. Interesting. It has this like melty, cushiony, hydrated, comfy, sinking bounce. And yeah, it's $29. That seems expensive. I mean... I guess Tempur-Pedic mattresses are like over $1,000. Think about it. And yeah, it's great. People love it on Sephora. It's very highly rated. But it's it's not greasy. Like it's called a lip oil, but it's more of like a cushiony gloss. It's definitely more of a cushiony gloss and it's not very sticky at all, but it does, it has like good staying power and I like it. 
People should try it out. There you Give go. it a try. So I have, <sighs> mom, if you're listening to this, turn the volume down. This is the hot coffee scrub from a brand called Studio Ready. And I'm just going to read you the back of the of the jar. This handcrafted scrub contains a precisely blended ratio of cane sugars and natural oils specifically designed to revive and stimulate the skin on your derriere for a fresher, younger, more moisturized appearance. Once a day while showering, massage onto your lower region for at least 30 seconds, then rinse thoroughly with warm water. So basically what I've brought for show and tell is an ass scrub. If you're planning to like get intimate with someone, you can use this to assure yourself that you're as clean as you want to be for that experience. And you can also ensure that uh, your butt smells like sugary coffee for that experience. I think it would be helpful if you gave a little bit more context around like how this brand came to be so that people understand why this is so salacious because women have are very familiar with coffee butt scrubs. They are? Hell yeah. When you've never used a coffee butt scrub. Of course, I make my own. <laughs> so it's for the inside. It is a very intimate product for a very intimate scenario that you might find yourself in. It's founded by this guy named Alex in Miami who worked with porn stars to basically figure out some products that they wanted for their close-ups. And one was a butt scrub, which he has. Another one is like a, for lack of a better term, like an anal bleaching cream. There's also travel sizes. It's anything that you want, but you might be afraid to order. The good thing is that it comes in very discreet packaging and you're supporting like a, a young entrepreneur in Miami. And I, he's a really nice guy. And I think we should have him on the podcast to talk about how he's building his business because I think it's, you know, knowing from Necessary where we had a sex gel in the product line, it's really hard to, to sell anything related to sex on Google or on Facebook or any of those places where you would buy ads. It's nearly impossible when anything is related to sexual pleasure. So I'm curious to see how he's building the company. That's so funny that you said that because actually at Glossier, when we first launched, because we had so much visual skin on the website we got blocked at a lot of at a lot of offices really because they're like seeing like what percentage of the screen is skin i yeah something weird to do with like the google crawler whatever things um back to butt scrubs yeah so it's basically think about it as like a scrub you know okay i'm gonna get graphic for a second boy bottoms have like hair right and hair can trap things you don't want to trap Nick, you really think that guys are the only people with hair don't girls like shave the hair or like get rid of the hair yeah but it, they have it they do yeah well you just said don't they <laughs> <laughs> i mean i've never seen the inside of a girl's derriere so i don't know that but that's news to me got it um but i appreciate that they do and i would think this is a unisex product if you i think the one thing is that you have to enjoy the smell like the scent of coffee because it does smell pretty strongly of coffee grounds but it works and it like it it's more I think what's interesting about it is that it's more of like a product that gives you a little bit more self-confidence because like I think both men and women can sometimes get a little insecure about the smell down there. And this will, you know, relax you. I read an interview with a woman that has a brand called Sporty and Rich, and she was highly recommending doing coffee enemas. Really? She was, yeah. What does that do? 
Great question. But the reason that a lot of people use coffee or caffeine in products for the lower half of your body is because caffeine is a diuretic. And so it basically interacts with like the water in your skin to plump up the appearance of your skin at the surface level. And so it temporarily, they say, can reduce the appearance of cellulite. Hmm. Well, this, this product is designed to make eating ass more enjoyable. I'm just going to leave you with that. It's $52 on sale right now, and you can get it on studioready.com. Well, I'm wide awake. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I think it's time to call it an episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at eyewitnessbeauty or write us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Our name is spelled E-Y-E. But on Twitter, we had to be I as in the letter <laughs> Except I. Except for on Twitter and Nick set that one up. <laughs> Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode and we will talk to you then. Stay sexy, America. And wear your retainers underneath your face masks. <laughs>